All right, it's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, Carla Lolly Music sits down with me to talk olive oil, something that I use almost like every day at home cooking, but I realize I really don't know much about it, like why I buy the bottles that I buy. Am I storing it correctly? A lot of questions. Fortunately, Carla has a lot of answers. So we go deep on olive oil to start off the show. And after that, senior editor Meryl Rothstein, uh, who has been with BA since like 2011, but this is her first time on the pod. Uh, she joins senior food editor Andy Baragani to talk about a story they worked on in our February issue. Uh, Andy grew up in a food-loving Persian household here in America, but uh, he has traveled extensively around the Middle East. Uh, and he wrote a piece for us about his sort of personalized approach to modern Middle Eastern cooking and how he has sort of fused a lot of the techniques and ingredients and traditions that he grew up with, with his experience in restaurant kitchens around the United States. Uh, and it's a fascinating story and so much delicious food. All right, let's do this thing. Here is Carla and me. Okay, if I knew you were going to bring all these olive oils for tasting, I would not have made myself this like completely extraneous espresso drink. But you know that olive oil does not contain caffeine. No, I'm just talking taste bud wise. I know. I just drank a coffee too, and that's fine because we're just, you know, we're mere mortals. That's true. But you did call me like 20 minutes before the podcast and to say, how much do you really know about olive oil? And I was like, (laughs) okay, first of all, I'm already making a two page sheet of factoids. Second of all, I just feel like the tasting, the reason. Wait, can I interject? Yeah, you may. If I may, uh, if you actually look up that word in the dictionary, factoid, pretty sure the original definition suggests that factoids are actually not accurate facts. They're not facts at all. They're kind of like things that are taken for facts, but they're actually sort of misinformation. Okay. Can I tell you a fact? Yes. You just made all of our listeners fall asleep. Yes. By talking about factoids. They know to now not misuse the word factoid. Okay. So, great. All right. So, we're, we're talking olive oil. Not coffee. No. Although sometimes I figure I should just move to Italy. Those are the two things I consume the most of. It's interesting, if I may, because I'm a few years older than you. Just a few. Okay. Grown up in the 70s, I don't remember olive oil. I remember like, quote unquote, cooking oil and vegetable oil and Crisco mm-hmm. and Wesson. And then at some point in the 80s, I want to say, like, if you're American and you like to cook, you had to have olive oil in your kitchen, and that was the oil you cooked with. I also grew up in the 70s, but as I've mentioned before, I grew up in an Italian household, so we always had olive oil, and my mom always cooked with olive oil. But one of the things I learned when we were working on the olive oil story- From our November issue. From our November issue, is that some of the olive oil brands that I grew up on have since been sold to like multinational companies and are not made the same way. So some of the brands that I remember in the pantry don't taste the same. Hmm. And that's because they're no longer owned by the same families Hmm. and companies. Who knew? You knew. I I learned this when we had all these olive oil tastings. Okay, so let's talk olive oil because like now, yeah, you have olive oil in your kitchen. If you cook in a Western style, like you cook with olive oil. Totally. I will be the first to admit that I, you know, yay, I love olive oil. I use it all the time. When I go to the store, I, it's like when I go to the wine store and I don't know what I'm doing, I'm like, that label looks cool. That seems affordable. I guess I'll buy that. It's a really good comparison, actually, to compare olive oil and olives to grapes and making wine because it's very similar in a lot of ways. Where the olives are grown, how they're harvested, when they're harvested, who harvests them, um, the bottling, the transportation, like all of those things totally affect quality. Storage. Storage is a big deal. Um, and so, you know, you would ask me earlier, you know, why? how come, let's talk about how come some olive oils are really yellow and some are really green. Like I have no idea. There's a million different factors, like the type of olive, where it's grown, when it's picked. Um, you know, it, it'll change color in the bottle. So you can't really go by any of those. I mean, those are those are just as good markers as any. Like I think starting with the label is actually really smart. So there's two couple things. Looking at the label, there's a couple things to look for, and looking at the price is actually a great way. Not because more expensive means the most expensive one is going to be the best quality, but 
under a certain price, you should be wary. Hmm. It's like when when the when the steak is like two ninety nine a pound. <laughs> there's a reason. There's a reason, and maybe you don't want that steak. Okay, well, all right. So let's talk about the label because there's there's times to buy the expensive stuff, and there's times to buy the less expensive stuff. Let's first extra virgin. I think we all know that phrase. Should I always be buying extra virgin? I believe now, after the research that we did for this story, that you should only cook with extra virgin olive oil. Extra virgin olive oil is the highest quality olive oil. It's going to be the best tasting. It's going to have to have adhered to the highest standards for quality that there's like a million different markers. And every olive oil that's labeled extra virgin olive oil actually has to be tasted by a panel of tasters. So kind of like sommeliers, if you want to make that comparison again. And it's not one single thing that will qualify you. It has to meet all of these exacting standards and blah, blah, blah. The reason that I think extra virgin you should have for both cooking and for finishing oils is because of that high quality kind of across the board. And there is a really big difference in price. So you can buy an extra virgin olive oil that's not going to break the bank that you don't feel bad about using for vinaigrettes, but also pan frying your eggplant in and and whatever. And then you use in much smaller quantities the really robust tasting, assertive olive oil that might be, you know, $10 more expensive per bottle, but you use a lot less of it. For like finishing on for finishing after for the dish drizzling. is done, drizzle yeah. and okay. like if you're gonna go and you know this is one of my my favorite party tricks is to instead of buying a whole bunch of cheeses, just buy like one huge hunk of parm and put it on a table with a knife in it and a really beautiful bottle of olive oil on the table and drizzle that over. Mm. That's when you want the like you know bring out the big guns, the good stuff, fat on fat. I have three words for you, Carla. Talk to me. First cold. Okay, again, so this is another thing that we learned, Um, kind of like natural on a dozen eggs or, you know, farm fresh on a container of milk. Cold press doesn't actually mean anything. All of the pressing for olive oil is done with this like centrifuge type thing. And in order for it to be labeled extra virgin, it can't go over a certain temperature. So it's all cold pressed. So just putting cold pressed on it is this like marketing halo to make you think. But what about first cold press? Well, again, you can't have an extra virgin or even I think a virgin label if you have what done what put them through the ringer again like that just nobody does that it's just a way of making you think that that this is a higher quality oil any extra virgin olive oil is going to be cold pressed and it's not they're not going to squeeze the olive oil the olives out twice but they do do that they what what is mostly what happens with lower quality olive oils is that there's a lot of adulteration not in squeezing out the olives twice but in using lower quality olives, olives that are overripe, olives mm. that have started to rot and then get pressed, you get a higher yield out of an olive that's very, very ripe. But that doesn't mean that it is at its peak moment to be picked. So some producers will let the olives get you know, dead ripe on the tree and then press them because you'll get a higher yield of oil. It's like a softer thing about like a nice, soft, juicy piece of fruit and you squeeze it and more juice comes out. But that oil is not going to taste good. It's going to take fu- taste fusty and dusty and not We don't who wants fusty and dusty. You don't want actually no. those are words. Musty. <laughs> these are words that that cannot you can't pass the test on the taste oh. panel. They test for like 18 different criteria and the ones that will just qualify you are the flavors of musty, fusty, cucumber, hmm. and grubby. Grubby. Ooh, yeah. Don't want that. Okay, sorry. Right, so you got you got so look at the label. You extra want to virgin, see you want it to say obviously. extra virgin. If they have if they include the acidity number, that's Ooh. also a sign of quality. So very low acid oil is and, a higher quality. And low being what? As close to zero as possible. Okay, yes. So this one I'm holding in my hand the Lucini Premium Select Extra Virgin Olive Oil, which is we use every single day in the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. We really, really like this oil. 0. 0.2. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's so very it's low. very low. So there's a few things that I'm noticing when I'm looking at this bottle, mm-hmm. and you, you want to notice this in any bottle. So you're, you're I'm out of my Rappaport. I'm in my store. I'm in the aisle, and I'm like, how do I know which one to pick? I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to start looking at the label. Glass bottle. Hear that? Yeah, I do. Glass bottle, people. You want a glass bottle, not a plastic bottle, and you want it to be a dark color. Green, 
or black. And the reason for that is because light oxidizes the oil, oxidation changes the flavor. So even when it's back in your kitchen, you want to keep it in a dark place, ideally away from a source of heat. Obviously, we all keep our olive oil like right next to the stove. Mm, I'm guilty of that. So another thing to look for with that in mind is don't buy the three liter bottles anymore. My mom does this all the time. She goes up to um, Arthur Ave in the Bronx and goes to the Little Italy up there and buys me and my sister and herself these like three liter jugs of Sicilian olive oil. Turns out, buy an amount of oil that you can go through in 30 days. So if you're going to open up this bottle, you want to finish it in a month. And that's like 17 ounces or something. Yeah, this half is liter. a 500 milliliter. AKA so you can buy liter. several of them. Yep. But don't open them all at once. The other thing that- And Lu- that, that bottle you're holding there is Lucini. It's a great everyday olive oil that they have really high standards and including that the olives are harvested and pressed in the same location. About how much is that one? Do you know? This is like 16 or $17 okay. for 500 milliliters. So I think that's like, that's a good zone to be in. It is. But again, like listen, all, good olive oil is not cheap. That's a dollar an ounce. Right. If and my math is correct. I would say in general, if you're planning to cook with this and you're, you don't want to break the bank on it, just don't go beneath 10 bucks per liter. Okay. So just use that as like a rough guide. All right. All right. So, so you want a dark glass. You dark want glass. extra virgin. Mm-hmm. Let's look for the acidity level. You want as close to zero as possible. Not every brand is going to include that. But if they do, that means that they probably know their stuff. And then you're going to probably turn it over and look for where this oil is produced. Okay. So yes. you want it. You want ideally the olives to be grown in the same country as they're harvested and also for that to be the same country that they get bottled in. So ideally all of that would be happening in the same place. But do they tell you that on the label? Well, that's another thing that you have to look for. So seems this, like there's a lot of mischief going on in the in the olive oil world. We don't have to get into all like the There's like, so impo- much fraud. Yes, yeah, fraud, but let we're not going to get into that so much, but on the label, what does this label tell you? This says product of Italy. Okay. And it says it's produced exclusively for Lucini Italia, which means that they are over, they're working directly with the yeah. farm. So another thing to look for is like there are farm collectives where there's multiple growers in the same area and they use the same harvesting facility. All right. Question. Okay. Do I have to buy Italian olive oil? No, you don't. No, there's great olive oil coming out of California. Uh, One of our favorites also in the kitchen is Gaia, which is a Greek olive oil. There's supposedly really great olive oil coming out of Tunisia. Hmm. Spain makes olive oil. So like, no. These are the things that you can tell when you're, before you've spent any money. The most important thing is how does it taste, right? And some, but you don't know that till you buy it. That's true. It's like a wine. That's what. That's why I don't like wine. I don't want to say I don't like wine, but that's what frustrates me about wine. You think you're buying a nice bottle of wine because it's expensive and it's from Bordeaux and this and that, and you get it home and you're like, it's so tannic and yeah. And I just spent however many dollars on it. Okay, I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind because it blew my mind, and I, you know, am someone who likes to think that I already know everything. So this was very surprising, and all of the guys who came and did um, expert tasting panels with us for this story. If you open up a bottle of olive oil at home and you taste it and you think it might be musty or fusty or grubby, or you just don't like it, or you think the bottle's gone off or it was old, you can 100% bring it back to where you bought it, whether that's a grocery store, a stop and shop, a Kroger's or um, Italy, and go talk to a manager and tell them, I opened up this bottle. It tastes musty and fusty and I want it returned. They will 100% return your money. This is just like a standard. What all these guys told us is that is 100% a standard thing that happens in distribution. The manager is going to keep track of those bottles. He's in touch with his distributor. And the store will get credited. Have you ever been to Gracidi's on 8th Avenue? (laughs) That's not happening there. No. I think you should try it. I think you should try and and let us know. What happens when you get a wine in a restaurant and you don't like how it tastes? You sit there and go like, oh, I guess. We'll there's a anyway. there's a big difference between not liking something and it being bad. Like rancid and oh I don't like that are two different things. Right. And the average person doesn't know what good or bad olive oil in, is in terms, a, in terms of, or whether or not the I don't say they don't know whether or not they like the olive oil, but it's like I wouldn't know whether or not an oil has gone bad because of storage or light exposure or something. If you taste it and you don't like it, you bring it back to the store and you say, I don't like this bottle. I think it's gone off. They will it will be a non it will be a nothing. 
Dude, do you know how many broken eggs they have every day at that Christie's? Yes, but a broken egg is different but than... But they're used to the... Trust me. I, I believe these guys, all of them said, like, 100%, they're buying olive oil from, like, their olive oil guy. Try it. Report back. Uh, they right. know yeah, you I'm at gonna, that Christie's. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... All right. But in terms of, like, buying, like, the nice olive oil, at what we're going to call finishing olive oil... Uh, which is you know it could be thirty dollars for a for mm-hmm. a half liter, and that's the stuff you might drizzle over your roast vegetables at the table, or right. on top of your parmesan, or like on a make an olive oil cake. You do a little drizzle at the end, or you yeah. know what I really like, which I had years ago, like at Oto or whatever, when they do the uh, little bit of olive oil on the vanilla gelato with a little sea salt. Like so that's good. a genius thing. But that's something you don't really know until you try it, or maybe you have it somewhere and you. Then, oh, that's delicious. What kind of olive oil right. is that? So I would say buy that in like a 100 milliliter bottle. Buy a really small quantity because it is expensive and you're not sure. And the taste can range from like buttery and fatty and really luscious to something that's like super grassy and peppery and vegetal. It's all good. It just is going to depend on your own preference. Some of the very peppery olive oils that have a lot of polyphenols, which is the, an antioxidant that is actually what causes that like burning you know how some, i was gonna ask you about that. why because yeah. sometimes i have i'm like ah, 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 and it's like why why does those it are do polyphenols and what's a polyphenol it's an antioxidant okay. so it has a lot of health benefits oh. like you know like like super fruits so good that it hurts so good it hurts and do you want to try the lucini yeah, let's do this. Okay. So you have so, little bowls here. So you bought here. your olive oil because you looked at the price, you looked at the label, you mm-hmm. feel confident that it's from a good grower, it's a product of whatever, and- Dark bottle. It's got a dark glass bottle. Extra virgin, low acidity. And it's not cheap. Yeah. It's not too expensive, but it's not cheap, which is kind of exactly. my go zone. All right. So the first thing, and this is a brand new bottle that I just opened up. The first thing, I'm going to pour you a little. So we're actually going to drink. Brad Leone and I have gotten into the habit. I go down to the kitchen at least once a day and I say, Brad, have you had your medicine today? And he's like, oh, no. And he grabs a nice bottle of olive oil and we both get a spoon and we drink a teaspoon of olive oil every day now. All right. So why? Because it's good for you because okay. it's an antioxidant okay. and it lubes up all your, I don't know, innards. Your, your, innards. Ner- your nerve endings. Um, okay. Your, so uh, what, what do they call it? The things like your giblets. <laughs> start using giblets to describe human anatomy. All right, can okay, I can so I smell can it. I can I can I all right, my impression when I smell it, this one, uh the Lucini, doesn't strike me as like grassy or peppery, but it has a nice buttery mm-hmm. soft nose to it. Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, like I would put this on popcorn almost. Is it that fair? It's a little bit like a cooked artichoke to me. Yeah, but it's but it's not, not peppery. Like, not Is it? I don't I wouldn't no, call it peppery. I wouldn't say it's peppery, but no. it does taste fr- I mean, it smells fresh. Oh, like, yeah. It's very fresh. And no, it smells a, vegetal. It has a wonderful nose. It's not, like, dusty. So I just take a sip? All right. So take a yeah. sip and kind of, like wine, kind of swirl it around, chew on it a little bit. People, you know what the listener loves? They love when you make weird mouth sounds into the microphone, apparently. Yeah. I, f- I apologize to everybody out there with misophonia. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just got the back of the throat. You got a little pepper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Ow. It's like when you get like chlorinated <laughs> swimming pool water mm-hmm. up your nose and everything. Ah, my God. All right. Oh, hurts so good. So those are the polyphenols. Oh, I'm going to chew on some crushed ice. Mm. I kind of swirled it around so I didn't get like the shot to the back of the oh, mouth. Oh, my God. Okay. But I like it. I like that flavor a lot. It's not just fatty. Yeah. It has some of the pepperiness. It's olivey. I think it's really delicious. Why and it's not so assertive, why, right? You can why imagine. can't we taste this with some nice focaccia or something? We could have. You know what? I'm okay. going to open up this next one. Please do. This Gaia. Is mm-hmm. Gaia, also known as like Mother Earth, goddess goddess of the earth, Mother Earth. Like who's like, who's in Greek? What's her Gaia's? Uh, yep. She's mm-hmm. like goddess of earth. Whatever. I'm reading um, Percy Jackson with my 10-year-old oh, right now. My my eight-year-old's super into the Percy Jackson, yeah. but he listens to the audiobooks. And at the one at the end when they're up in like the North Pole and they're fighting Thanatos or whatever. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. The death guy. And then there's the giant and then yeah. Gaia is trying to orchestrate the whole destruction of the world and get take, take down the one. gods. Anyway, so she's a main character. So again, we've got a dark green glass bottle, 500 milliliters. Adam's pouring me a little, about half a teaspoon yellowy, into a little. Yellowy, And so the other thing, thing when you're this tasting. One, this bottle's nice. It has a little pop-up it's, spout. It's really nice. It's like a little bar spout. Yeah. And it's nice for the side of the stove. Oh, can I say one thing which I love about the you're VA test kitchen? Swirl, swirl it. Swirling uh, you and guys, warming it. Which you guys do a lot of cooking down there, obviously. And I think for the home cook who does, I love that you put 
you are cooking olive oil in those little restaurant squirt bottles, like yeah. a little ketchup bottle, because you do. can just squirt it in the pan, yep. and you know exactly how much you're getting out. That's yeah. a cool trick for the home cook, right? Yeah, at home I use like a bar spout. Oh, you mean like the little metal I'd, tips? Like go into, I have like an old green bottle, mm-hmm. glass bottle from like some old... Do you, trans- do you transfer the olive oil I into- do because, so Lucini makes a three liter box that's kind of like boxed wine mm-hmm. technology where it's got the collapsible bag inside of yeah. the box. So it's, it keeps it airtight, okay, which is cool. prevents oxidation. And also, oxidation. Yeah, you're someone who does a lot of cooking. I do quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. So All right, here we're we go. about to taste the Gaia. This is from where again? Greece. Greece, okay. Mm. Mm. They're very mild. Very mild. Very mild. A little bit more vegetal, not as buttery and round. I little would say. burn, but not you're not no. getting that like I very do. peppery. I think I'm sensitive to polyphenols. <laughs> um, and the nose is very mild. Yeah, you, I, don't, I didn't get that like real grassy. Like for instance, I would not use this one to pour over some nice roasted carrots or some greens, just because I don't think it would add much to the equation other than fat. But I would totally cook with this. Yeah, but would I would you use cook it in with, a vinaigrette. Yeah, maybe vinaigrette where you want something a little bit more neutral. And I might drizzle it over like a lentil soup or something where you do just want a little richness. Like yeah. I said, you just want some fat but not flavor so as much. So both of these bottles were brand new when we opened mm-hmm. them. So I could have brought one that had been open a while. We could test the flavor. But now we're going to go into a Bertoli, Bertoli which, which is, is, you know, a brand I think that a lot of us, this is, I remember this label from like my childhood. This brand's been around a lot. And this is... They um, sell that at Grisidis. Exactly. And this is like their high-end one. So it's not... A lot of their oils come in a plastic bottle. This one's in a glass bottle. It has the harvest date on the back. Oh, that was another important point. So you want to look at the back of the, the bottle. There's going to be an expiration date on there. Okay? Oh, cool. Look at that. And yeah. the expiration date is going to be, generally speaking, two years from the mm. date of harvest. Okay. So what you should do as a as a purchaser is actually subtract a year off of that because you want to you want to use the oil up within a year of harvest. Okay. So automatically the label is going to give you the 2 years. So that's so June so, 8th, 2019. You want to use it by this June. We want to be done with this by this June. Okay. So you once you open a bottle, you want to consume it in 30 days. Purchase bottle unopened, you have 1 year. Before we get to the Bertoli, which is one of the big makers of olive oil and very accessible, we should not be using olive oil for everything, right? Like, if I'm making fried chicken cutlets, I don't need to fry them in olive oil. No. I can use basic vegetable oil. Yeah, you could use canola. I like to, you know, do more pan frying and deep frying with, like, canola, peanut oil, grapeseed. Also, those have a higher smoking point, They have right? a higher smoke point, and they have a really neutral flavor. So you're not yeah. looking for, like, a super olive oily. Anyway, at that temperature, most of the aroma burns off anyway, so you're not going to even notice also what i found interesting over the years doing articles with professional chefs Mm. oftentimes professional chefs will when they're making salad dressing they'll use either a mix of like olive oil and a neutral one like grapeseed or just sometimes they don't use olive oil at all like it's not always olive oil vinegar mustard or whatever i always do that for a mayonnaise and aioli like if you use 100% olive oil, it can just be really overpowering and bitter and like heavy on your palate. So, so you just go like half half or half, what we half do? or sometimes um, for aioli, I might do three quarter vegetable oil, one huh. quarter olive. Okay. Yeah. So this one has a nice color. Golden yellow. The flavor isn't as like fresh tasting, fresh smelling. Subtle. She's chewing on it, ladies and gentlemen. Hmm. It's got kind of a wicked, bitter aftertaste. Were you from Boston or something? Wicked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't get that. I, it was didn't? interesting. This one, oh, listen, I know the fat is fat as fat. It's for some reason, it stayed on my lips more. Mm-hmm. It's a little thicker. I don't know why that would be. A little bit of an unpleasant flavor on the finish. Maybe, yeah. I didn't mind it. I, it's, it's, it's more similar to Gaia than it is. I think Lucini is clearly the brand that has the most to say, right. if you will. One thing to say about olive oil and, and people with cooking, like, you know, fat is fat. So whether you're cooking with butter or olive oil or vegetable oil or grapeseed oil, uh, it's about, what, about 120 calories per, per tablespoon? Per tablespoon, yeah. Re- Ghee, re- coconut regardless oil. Regardless of what kind of fat you're using. Right. So if you're counting calories, then yes, be mindful of fat. If you're not calorie obsessed, but you are health minded, then it's a matter of which fat you're using and which fats are 
better for you. Yeah, and I would say that in general, olive oil, because of the antioxidants, because it's derived from this vegetable that's like good for you, it, it is really healthy. It's yeah. got omega-3s and omega-6s and... It's good stuff. Yeah, it's good Whereas stuff. Whereas butter is, has a, you know more saturated fat and less of the good stuff. Well, I've learned a lot. I now know how to shop for olive oil. I still have that back of the throat thing, which I, I guess there's not much I can do about. Um, well, you can drink a little of your water. And if you're yeah. tasting olive oils at home, at home, you might have two or three bottles of olive oil at the side of your stove right now. Taste your olive oil. This is the thing. Like When you're in the habit of buying the same olive oil all the time because it's just like, oh, that's the one I buy. Exactly. Just taste it like go home pour it in a spoon which i never do i just I use know. it like we were talking before in the test kitchen with molly Boz, one of our test kitchen cooks and i was saying that a lot of times i buy fran toya that brand clear with bottle gold. and i thought that it's a good bottle decent price and she said oh no we did a taste test and that was one that came in last when we did a whole foods taste test and i was right. like really i'm right. like oh i thought i liked that but like do I even know if I like it? Do I even know what it tastes like? No, because I'm always tasting it with all the other food and eggs or whatever I'm making. And, and you're just you're probably used to how it tastes. So this was no. A you thing. know why? You know why I bought it? Why? Because I like the look of the bottle. Exactly. Just like the wine. Exactly. Do I even know if I like it? No. But it is a glass bottle and it is dark green. No, it's it clear. It? Oh, really? Yes, Frantoia oh, is clear. Very strong. Is that why it has the foil wrapping around it? Maybe to keep Sometimes, the light out. Oh, see, that's interesting. Also, yeah, but I think some of the some of the versions have the foil, but not all of the versions. So, anyway, so yeah, right after we had all these the different makers come in and do tastings with us and sort of guide us through it, um, it's a lot like a coffee cupping. Oh, or you know a what? Wine it, well, tasting. no, it isn't green. See, yeah, the the oil itself has a nice green tinge, but the glass is clear. The glass is pretty clear. Wow. So after we had gone through this and we had different people come in over this over the course of several weeks, I w went home and tasted my olive oil and I had a really, what I thought was a really fancy bottle of Oleo Novello. So like a new harvest olive oil that was unfiltered and was like manufactured in small quantities. And it was this one that I was saving for like a special occasion, right? And I had learned, like, don't save it for a special occasion. Once the bottle is open, you Ooh, want to use it up as yes. quickly as possible. And so I had had it sitting there, and I only used it once in a while. And I poured it onto a spoon, and I tasted it. And it was right. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. Like, I just had this idea that it was good because I saved it. You know what it's like? It's like, it's like saving, like, the quote-unquote nice bottle of wine that someone gave you. Yeah. And it's been on top of your fridge for two That's years. Right. You're waiting for the special occasion. You know what? That bottle of wine's not going to be good because it's been sitting in your house in August with, when you went away for a week with no air conditioning on. Exactly. Uh, all right. So drink your olive oil, eat your olive oil, buy a nice bottle, spend as much as you can. Don't spend too much. Or if you're going to spend a lot, save that for the good stuff. Yep. And I love the notion of 30 days is a great rule. Awesome. All right, Carla Music, thanks so much. So fun. Andy, okay, so you wrote this fabulous primer um, for for the February issue about um, sort of your lens on modern Middle Eastern cooking. So to start, I'm kind of hoping you can... I mean, I have to stop you there. I wouldn't be able to do this without you because you're my editor, <laughs> but yes. Thanks, Andy. Can you tell a little bit about the Middle Eastern food you grew up with and sort of your style of Middle Eastern cooking now and kind of how you got from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. So I'm first generation American. My parents are from Iran and I grew up eating Iranian food pretty much every day. My mom's a great cook. Her mother was a great cook. Father's side, they're, they're good cooks too. I wouldn't say as good as my mom's <laughs> side. And I think I started cooking professionally around 16. That's when I started uh, my first restaurant. But I was very kind of apprehensive to ever cook the food that I grew up with for a while. I mean, up until I was maybe 21, 22. So I just didn't cook any Iranian food. I had no interest in actually Middle East Eastern food at all. I was more fascinated with like Escoffier, Karem, Alan Passard, like classic French chefs uh, from the past and present. And then um, I started kind of getting into it because uh, I was forced to kind of look at this food when I was uh, working at Sever. Uh, this was a while back. And they were doing a story on Iran, and they needed someone to develop the recipes. So I turned to my mother as a resource, and uh, I spoke to her on the phone for about two, three weeks to kind of get ideas, get her recipes, adapt them. And then from there, we, uh, I helped develop the recipes, and we tested them, tasted them, shot them. And then that led me to get 
really interested in Iranian food and Middle Eastern food at large. And so I've been traveling around the Middle East and cooking that food for, for a while now. And I've definitely pulled those flavors, ingredients, and techniques into kind of um, my own contemporary approach to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at the at the recipes in this story, and we will sort of go through them, it, it doesn't look that much like the foods I imagine your mom cooking. Is that right? That's, yeah, that absolutely. I mean, there's, there's definitely a few dishes that c- kind of look like or mimic um, that we'll go through, like the, there's the rice dish tachine or, or the yogurt dip, but a lot of it is my kind of look and my feel and aesthetic that I've kind of, the way I've learned to plate things from working at Bon App and at restaurants before and uh, put my own spin on it and my own look. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about the Middle East, you know, what countries do you have in mind as you're as you're working on these recipes? Uh, that's a loaded question, though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I am uh, including Iran. I'm including um, countries in North Africa. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go through every single country, but definitely um, Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, uh, Morocco, around the Arab world, uh, uh, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, also non-Arab worlds like Iran, Turkey, Israel. <laughs> when I say Middle Eastern food, I know I don't want to fall into that trap of just saying Middle Eastern food and I know there are dishes that comes to mind right off the bat, but there, this region of the world has such a range of cuisine, uh, mm-hmm. and I just it was really hard to kind of showcase all that in the story. I mean, we, it could have been a whole issue, but that's <laughs> <laughs> next year. Maybe. Uh, next year, one day. Um, <laughs> but I just kind of pulled selfishly again, it, and it's it's called my uh, Middle Eastern guide because it is a lot of the dishes and techniques and ingredients that have inspired me from my childhood and from my travels. So believe me, if I had more time, if I had more uh, more pages, I would have uh, gone through so many more dishes and ingredients and stories. Right. Okay, so let's kind of talk about some of those, the techniques and ingredients that are so important to your mm-hmm. cooking. In the magazine, the the first rule um, you give is go savory, not sweet, with orange water. So, you know, to me, like, I feel like orange blossom water and rose water, sometimes I see that on an ingredient list, and I'm like, it's going to taste like perfume. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so I'll maybe, like, skip the recipe. Am I being... You know, am I being silly? No, I hear you. I think because those flavors are are quite strong and they're um, they can be aggressive and they can be quite floral. I was turned off actually early on because I thought uh, when I was introduced to them as a kid, mostly in pastries and desserts, I just had no desire to eat those sweets, mm-hmm. and um, they were in these desserts that my family loved but that I couldn't stand and then there were some savory dishes that uh, my mom made where there was like a a splash of rose water and some savory dishes that I tried through my travels where it was like a splash of orange blossom water rose water tends to be more popular in Iranian food um, and then orange blossom water I saw it more in uh, in Morocco and when I was traveling around Lebanon and uh, while it can be delicious in desserts, uh, I, it's not my favorite thing, but there's nothing against that. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's actually great on on braised meats and, or a, a splash in a marinade because it kind of gives that subtle, like, je ne sais quoi. It's like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And, like, on lamb shanks, just a little bit of rose water or, or orange blossom water with a cooked down mirepoix and some woody herbs and a splash of wine and stock and mm-hmm. slowly braise. It's, it's, it's not perfumey or floral. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, there's a subtlety to it that's really nice. Mm-hmm. We have a recipe for citrus and avocado salad with orange water. What's it doing there? I just wanted it to be like an amplified citrus, like you were in this... This is going to sound crazy, but like <laughs> a, a little dramatic, but like this citrus forests of sorts where you're just surrounded by citrus trees and uh, uh, very evocative yeah I wanted (laughs) uh, a mix of citrus so grapefruits and different kinds of oranges blood oranges caracara oranges and kumquats and then the dressing be from uh, a little bit of lemon juice or Meyer lemon juice if you have it 
um, and a splash of orange blossom water. And that just kind of took it um, another notch and it made it juicy. And it's a cold citrus salad, but before you even spoon anything in your mouth, you could smell it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really nice. Yeah. Do you have advice on buying orange blossom water or rose water? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is rose water and orange blossom water aren't that expensive and they last you a long time Mm because a little goes a long way um there are brands uh, that uh, i think the waters tend to be too concentrated so depending on where you are i would buy a bottle it shouldn't be more than four or five bucks play around with it Uh, use it as a marinade for braised meats uh, in the citrus salad i love it on like kind of shaved ice or you could stir it into vanilla ice cream especially the orange blossom water or even the rose water and Mm -hmm. that'll be delicious but um breaking your dessert rule i know i know (laughs) i'm just not a big sweets person but i shouldn't say that (laughs) you like I don't even know how to, I don't want to butcher this Mamune brand. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They're, um, forgetting where they're based exactly. I thought they were in Southern California, but they're great. They've been around for a little while now. Uh, we've used their rose water and orange blossom water in, uh, in the test kitchen. There's a few other brands. If you can't find that one, you could definitely find it on online or Amazon. But um, Sadaf is really good for rose water, uh, and Cortaz is great for, uh, for orange blossom water as well. You talked about shopping online. Sort of as we go through, we're going to talk about a bunch of ingredients that some of which are probably not super, you know, not in your ordinary supermarket. True. Where do you suggest people shop? You know, if they don't have a local Middle Eastern market, where do you suggest they shop to, to find the ingredients? Well, there's some ingredients you could definitely find, and we'll go through those ingredients, as you mentioned. But for, let's say, the orange water or the flower waters or uh, the saffron, you might want to order online if you don't have uh, access to it. Calustians, <laughs> funny spelling in New York City. They do ship. Uh, there's always Amazon. You also talk about um, pickles, and I wish people could see the hot pink pearl onion pickles because they are genuinely hot pink. What makes them hot pink? How do you make these? How do you use them? Um, so the way these pickles are um, based off of something that uh, I grew up with called torshi. That's the Farsi term for pickles. And pickles are in, in Iran, they're a lot more acidic uh, and a lot more, uh, they have this funk to them that you don't necessarily get with the kind of pickles that we, American style pickles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no sugar added to it. And the pickles that I've tried in Turkey and in Lebanon, uh, they definitely have like a good acidity to it as well. These pickles uh, are made from pearl onions, and it's a riff off of um, torsia piaz. Piaz means onions, so onion pickles. They could be made with red onions or um, or or sweet onions and uh, distilled vinegar. These ones have dried mint. Uh, I use white wine vinegar for this. Dried mint, dried tarragon, a little bit of garlic, and what gives it the hot pink color, because uh, I decided to use pearl onions, and I cut them in half, so you see these kind of petal, this, I don't know, this kind of petal-like shape. I put a, sneaked in a piece of a shaved beet, just to dye the brine, and give it that hot pink color. It's like a little trick. And so how are you using these? I mean, is it... Are they a little aggressive for snacking straight? Is it more alongside other things? I'd say right off the bat, like if you let them cool in the brine and then try them the next day, they're definitely going to be aggressive. They're going to be salty, funky, super acidic. But I tried them like a week ago, two weeks ago, and they've mellowed out and they're so delicious. You really do want them to sit and um, kind of set for a bit. I would toss them into kind of like a herby, crunchy veg salad on grilled meats as kind of... uh, a way to introduce acidity to cut through kind of that uh, like fatty grilled meats or lamb chops or um, a grilled steak. I think that would be really nice. Anything that you want to add a bright, acidic, slightly funky punch to it, basically. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we were working on this, you are telling me about your dad's pickles that how long did they pickle for? So another pickle that's really famous, but it's, you only really need two ingredients, is sear torshi. Sear means garlic, and it's a whole head of garlic with the skin on, and just white distilled vinegar, 
and you just stack the garlic, pour the vinegar over, and then you wait. That's the hard part. And you wait <laughs> seven years. <laughs> that's the rule. You know, there. I don't know what. I don't. I don't know what the reason is. I think it. it that's when it's. They say seven years is when it's the right time to eat the garlic. So the vinegar ends up turning into this kind of cloudy, deep, deep, dark um, auburn brown color and and the papery skin um, softens and the flesh becomes gem-like and, and sweet and uh, rids it from the kind of spicy garlic taste mm-hmm. and uh, it's like nothing else. And you eat that with specific dishes. You eat certain pickles with certain dishes. What do you eat the You eat the pickled with? garlic with uh, smoked whitefish or fried whitefish with uh, seville oranges or sour oranges and um, a platter of raw herbs and then this herby saffron rice. Okay. And has does your dad literally make these seven-year pickles? He makes these, yeah. He doesn't do it every year, He but he has like he has a batch going for like 10 years now. Where do you keep it? He keeps it in the garage. Okay. <laughs> My mom brings it sometimes, or the two of them, they bring it over for me, but I don't I don't know. I'm still single, so I avoid that. Uh, <laughs> I avoid the garlic. <laughs> Um, Okay, awesome. I want to talk about um, blooming spices. Yes. So what does that mean? Why should we do it? So I think a lot of people are familiar with toasting their spices, toasting whole spices. That's something that we... I've uh, been telling readers for a long time to uh, buy whole spices, to toast them, and grind them yourselves. Blooming spices is a little bit different, and a lot of cultures do this, but it's something that I saw uh, my mom do nearly every single day when she was making chorish or stew in, in Farsi. And it's basically taking ground spices and warming them in hot oil. Or, or, or it can just basically fat. So it can be oil, it could be butter, it could mm-hmm. be ghee. And what you're doing here is you're fully extracting all the oils from those spices. So you're kind of amplifying the flavor and you have this incredible oil that is will serve as your base to this your stews or or your pilafs mm-hmm. or or it can even be something that you drizzle over yogurt that, yeah that's something that we tend to do. we bloom spices or bloom dried herbs and drizzle that over yogurt that's something that my mom would do. Mm-hmm. You do a spinach yogurt dip with sizzled mint or bloomed mm-hmm. mint. What are some other ingredients you might bloom? Turmeric is a great one. Um, warming turmeric, I think um, doing heating turmeric with a little bit of uh, in olive oil or in, uh, in butter with uh, some ground cardamom is delicious and black pepper and drizzling that over yogurt or even putting that in yogurt and using that as a marinade for different meats. That'd be really, really delicious. Mm-hmm. Different spice mixes. I'm a fan of Razal Hanu, Baharat. We talk about that in in the guide. And uh, there's different ways to bloom. Uh, it's always like a kind of a dried item and um, a liquid, but um, it doesn't always have to be hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how would you do it if it's not hot? hot? Well, saffron technically is like we talk about how to properly use saffron and you see saffron in you buy them in threads and i think a lot of recipes they say just to crumble the crumble the threads my mom would actually have a spice grinder dedicated just for grinding saffron that tells you how much she was using saffron (laughs) um she would grind it with a kind of a sugar cube or, or a pinch of kosher salt just so it really breaks down until it's pulverized and finely ground uh, powder, and then you would uh, put the ground saffron in not cold water, but like warm water, mm-hmm. and uh, so you fully extract the saffron of its color. Okay, and um, that's what we tell you to do in the guide as well. Yeah. So to talk about saffron, so <laughs> what are you then doing with that water? So saffron water, um, you can the way. I grew up with saffron, obviously, is used so much in Iranian cuisine. It tends to be added to rice. So you would dye the basmati rice uh, in the sa- using the saffron water. But it also can be added to stews. Um, it can be also added to marinades. There's a grilled chicken dish that's like with saffron water and onions and garlic, uh, known as juja kebab. You guys know what kebab is. Juja means chicken. 
It's really unlike anything else. And once you have a taste of good saffron, you, you'll know that uh, you, ca- you can't compare it to turmeric or, or, or the other varieties or of saffron uh, that you might see. So how can you know if you're getting good saffron? We we'll give you a few clues. Um, one is to look at the threads. You want like this deep, deep red color. Uh, you want it to be dry and, and brittle. That's so you know that it's, it's been gone through the right process, the right drying process. There's a lot of different saffrons. I am biased, but I do <laughs> believe Iranian saffron is the best because I think it is upwards of 93 or 95% of the saffron comes from from Iran. Let's put it this way. You you really want to see saffron that's always in its original state, in the thread stage. You don't want to buy saffron that's ground. You uh, want to look for that deep red color. You want to uh, store it in a... Fr- in, I store it in mine in the fr- freezer. Okay. That's how my mom always did it uh, or, or does it. You got to play around with it, I think. How long do you keep it in the freezer for? Oh, I've, my God, I have saffron that's been in the freezer for more than a few years, I think. Okay, as long as the seven-year pickles? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think a question that a lot of people have about saffron is, why is it so expensive? So I'll give you, here, this is a great question. (laughs) So this saffron comes from um, a particular type of crocus flower, and there's about uh, five threads, five, five stigmas per flower, and you have to harvest it by hand. So you have to harvest a lot of crocus flowers to get just even an ounce of saffron. An ounce of saffron is quite a lot of saffron, but still like thousands and thousands of flowers. I don't know the exact number that we said, but... Right, I think we said it takes about a thousand flowers to produce one One ounce ounce. of saffron. So it's uh, it's labor intensive, and um, which is why it's still the most expensive spice in the world. You should sort of expect to pay between ten to thirteen dollars per, per gram, gram. Yep. for the for the real deal mm-hmm. stuff. Um, That's another good indicator, right? If you see like this uh, two for one deal for the saffron, I <laughs> <laughs> stay away. Yeah. So you use saffron in what I think is my favorite <laughs> recipe uh, from this story: uh, crunchy baked saffron rice with barberries. Yeah. So it's this like crispy dome of rice. Can you talk a little bit about the technique that you used in that dish? Absolutely. Because it's really awesome. So this is a dish that is very much, I, I didn't mess with it too much. It's something that I did grow up with. It's called tachin, and it's very different from the other rice dishes in Iranian cuisine. Iran, probably more than any other country in the Middle East, really, really loves rice, and a lot of um, the diet consists of rice, and there's many different types of uh, ways of cooking it. And this way, they actually, it's a baked rice. It's kind of like a rice casserole of sorts. But you still got, get this incredible crust on the bottom uh, called the tadik. And so this is a dish that uh, I would eat when I was young. It was my one of my favorite dishes. And it's basically uh, basmati rice that's par-cooked, that's uh, tossed with yogurt, uh, saffron water, uh, some kind of neutral oil, it could be sunflower oil, vegetable oil, canola, and um, and egg yolks. Uh, you get this kind of baked, fluffy rice still, but it's 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 actually it's like a rice cake of sorts. And my mom would uh, uh, form it in a rectangular kind of Pyrex dish, but I changed it and I wanted to do it in a uh, pie dish, a glass pie dish. Just because I want to change the shape up, I thought the round shape is slightly more um, more aesthetically pleasing to the eye than just a rectangle or a square. And um, you usually layer it with chicken, but I avoided that. I wanted to just keep it vegetarian. And instead, I filled the center with uh, rehydrated barberries, but you could also use currants, uh, raisins, or uh, sour cherries. Barberries are a type of uh, shrub that are used in the Middle East uh, that are extremely, extremely tart, and you need to either soak them to rehydrate them or heat them up in a little bit of um, butter, like uh, we say in the recipe. And uh, you could add some saffron, uh, excuse me, some uh, rose water to it, but that's optional in the recipe. And so you layer the rice uh, into this round baking dish, and then you add the barberries, half the barberries, and then um, add the remaining rice, and you bake that covered until the bottom of the glass dish. You can see that it's this deep golden 
sunset hue. And then uh, you invert it, and you have this incredible crust and that's formed, and a really fragrant, um, fluffy rice. And you top it with the remaining barberries, and you just crack it around and uh, serve it. And what is the saffron doing in that dish? Like, I think, I don't know how to articulate the flavor of saffron. How mm-hmm. would you describe it? There's, I mean, it depends. Some people, they're really, when it, when you use too much of it, it could almost become metallic. Mm-hmm. But when it's just the right amount, I think for this, we called for like one or half a teaspoon ground saffron. Uh, so a little goes a long way. And it's not only coloring the rice, uh, the whole dish, and then giving that crust its wonderful hue, but it's this kind of fragrant, almost, I don't want to say floral, but definitely somewhat floral uh, character to the whole dish. Mm-hmm. And you talk about barberries, so I want to go back. You make a point about sort of the, the power of sour ingredients oh, yeah. um, in Middle Eastern food. Um, and in particular, we have a recipe for pomegranate glazed chicken with buttery pine nuts. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to me a little bit about pomegranate? So this, is this one pomegranate juice or pomegranate molasses? We, or use, you use, both. Both? Okay. we use both. Okay. So yeah. what do each of those ingredients bring to the dish and, and what are other ways you, you can use them? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, I think people have just become obsessed with pomegranate um, in the last, I don't know, how long? Six, seven, eight years? Mm-hmm. It's been a while now. And it's a fruit that I've been, I grew up with f- forever. Um, and I loved the the seeds. My dad would just um, remove all the seeds and then add some salt, and I would just have a bowl of the pomegranate seeds. Or, <laughs> or I, he would crush it with, with his hands and, and juice the pomegranate, and I'd get like half a cup of pure pomegranate juice. Um, before palm was such a thing. Oh, yes, before palm was <laughs> such a thing. And for this dish, I just wanted to uh, do something where take a protein that we all love, or a lot of us love, chicken, and incorporate the sour element to it. Um, it's a riff on a dish that I had. It's a riff on a few dishes I had. It's a riff on the sour cherry dish I had in Lebanon. It's a riff on this Afghani dish uh, that I had with the pomegranate juice. Uh, and I wanted to do like a glazed chicken mm-hmm. uh, where it just, uh, it's a split. Uh, it's basically a spatchcock chicken that gets split in half. So you have the breast and the drumstick uh, and the thigh all attached and the wing. And then you season it with salt, and then um, you do you marinate it with a bit of yogurt, garlic, and a pomegranate molasses. We say for at least a few hours, but overnight is ideal. And then you remove it from the marinade, and then you glaze it with this mixture of honey and pomegranate molasses. It's going to give the chicken this lacquered look to it. Mm-hmm. And then you roast the chicken in a really hot oven, I think, 450 cooks up really quickly and uh, you glaze it one more time and it gets this wonderful deep dark shiny crackly skin and then you serve that uh, with a bit of pomegranate juice in the bottle bottom of a bowl i love juice Uh, there's someone uh, one of my friends who used to (laughs) work here suli she made fun of me once saying that like you like sauces and dressings that are just like juices and i'm like yeah i do (laughs) i like i do like sauces that are are juice i don't know what it is but yes i use pomegranate juice as like as a way of um as a sauce and I just seasoned that with a little bit of salt, and I kind of wanted to amplify the acidity through a bit of uh, lime juice. And then I topped it with pine nuts that get toasted in butter. So you have these wonderful uh, toasted pine nuts, but also this kind of pine nut infused butter mm-hmm. that you spoon over. I love that dish. I think uh, there there is no other region of the world that is obsessed with sour flavors. There's mm-hmm. so many ingredients that they use all over. Sour ingredients uh, to impart acidity in dishes. Mm-hmm. So like, what are some of the other sour ingredients? So besides uh, pomegranate molasses, uh, there's uh, barberries, which we mentioned, which are in the, um, the rice dish, tachine. You describe them in the rice dish well, but if I were to sort of buy a bag, 
what else should I be doing with them? Oh, I love them like just to soak them in a little bit of lukewarm water with a little bit of salt and sugar. You want to rinse them and make sure you uh, look for any kind of small twigs that might be there. And then I like adding them to uh, like a shaved cauliflower salad. Again, another a crunchy veg salad. I like it in I like it in a lot of different versions of salads, whether it's like a veg salad or a crunchy salad in your um in in a grain bowl uh, and it just has this like squeaky uh current like red it looks like a red current but has a lot of acidity and has a good chew to it and I love it. Mm-hmm. You also talk about dried limes. You talk about sumac. Yes. Sumac, I think some of us might be familiar with. It comes from the sumac berry, and it's dried and then pulverized to this kind of deep brick powder. And uh, you could use it just to kind of sprinkle it over rice. Uh, that's a lot of the times I'll just use it over, like, steamed rice, sprinkle it over uh, with an egg yolk or a fried egg. Um, I grew up where it was sprinkled on top of kebabs. It's uh, sprinkled traditionally on on um, fatouche, the Lebanese uh, salad. And think of it as like kind of a, a spice that'll impart acidity to whatever it touches. Mm-hmm. Like a little bit of like a lemony. Yes. Vibe. A lem- oh yeah, definitely lemony. Slightly astringent. The dried limes are something. Are <laughs> they're so f- weird and funky and they look like little tiny planets and you'll see different shades of them there's uh, ones that are white brown and black and that the color has to do with how long it's been aging and these dried limes are salted and then dried in the sun and they pick up as they as they dry they pick up this kind of wonderful musky flavor i'm a fan of the in-between so i like the brown ones and the way to use those is to kind of pierce them a bit with a paring knife, or you could crack them, and you add them to a braise, a couple will do, or a stew. So it kind of rehydrates, and it'll give this sour, slightly bitter, uh, wonderfully funky flavor. Um, I grew up in, uh, was ate it in a lot of different stews. You can occasionally see it in powdered form, uh, I love that too, where they remove the seeds and they pulverize it and then uh, sprinkled on uh, grilled vegetables. It's really nice. There are other ingredients that I even get, didn't, we didn't have uh, time to really get into. There's gure, which I'm trying to think of. The Well, gure are, is unripened wine grapes. Okay. We don't mention this in the guide, but you'll see them in jars. They're just tiny, tiny uh, wine grapes that are really sour mm-hmm. and uh, you add that um, you add that to stews uh, you could chop them up and fold it into salads uh, you could juice those which w- you'll get like something similar to verjou and okay. you'll add that as well okay I want to talk about tomb which <laughs> I have to admit not sure that I knew what that was until we started working yeah. on this story you have a nice anecdote in here that you didn't always know what it was either. Yeah. In case some of our listeners don't know, what is tomb and what should we be doing with it? So tomb is a dairy-free, intensely garlicky sauce. That's basically what it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's made with a lot of garlic, some kind of neutral oil, usually typically grapeseed oil, um, salt, and lemon juice and uh, a splash of ice water. Mm-hmm. Not too many ingredients. It's definitely you need some finesse and there's some technique to making it. It if you just by looking at it you'd think it's yogurt, mm-hmm. but it's less dense and it's it's fluffy and there's this almost like fluff like like marshmallow fluff quality to it just mm-hmm. by looking at it. A lot of people might have even had it before, but they're just not aware. It's that intense garlic sauce you'll see that's swiped on shawarma Mm -hmm. occasionally on falafels and it's so delicious and addictive and will not allow you to kiss anybody for days upon days after (laughs) (laughs) and you talked about it requires a little finesse what is what do i need to know to do it well well one i will say it's Best if you make a big batch of tomb. A small batch, just like a half a cup or a quarter cup, is a little bit difficult. I was able to kind of figure out a way to make uh, like uh, one and a half cups just by using a blender. A blender is essential. It's definitely easier to use a blender here than um, 
than a food processor. You're basically emulsifying the garlic and the oil together to get this thick, bright, white sauce. How do you use tum? You have a recipe for um, charred sweet potatoes with tum where you kind of like swipe it on the bottom of the plate, which is a classic Andy move, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, aside from making this recipe, what are other ways you'd use tum? So uh, because it's so intense and, and garlicky, I would add something that can kind of can stand up to it. So I think it's actually delicious uh, to go something as simple as like roast chicken. It's not that a roast chicken is intense, but like you do that kind of chicken fat will cut through the intense lemony, garlicky sauce. I think charred vegetables, similar to the sweet potatoes, but I think a dollop of this on slow roasted eggplant would be delicious. Grilled zucchini, grilled torn zucchini with a lot of chili flakes on top and torn mint. Yeah, it's. I, I think it pairs really well with with the grilled items. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something sort of... Shawarma-like, just like it's how it's classically paired with. Okay, now yogurt. You know, in the magazine we say put a dollop on it, which mm. I feel like is a is a BA philosophy. But you know, when you're at home, what are you? What are the many ways you're using yogurt? There's a, a very few things that I make or that I eat that can't be improved by a dollop of yogurt. All you really need is. To start, to start out with is, is good yogurt that you enjoy and a good amount of salt, probably more than you think. Mm-hmm. I think people forget to kind of season their yogurt. And it depends on what yogurt you start out with. I grew up with kind of yogurt that wasn't as thick as Greek yogurt. It was Persian-style yogurt. It was this kind of in-between of American-style yogurt and, and Greek yogurt. So it was thick, but not nearly as thick as, uh, as Greek yogurt. And there was it was quite tart as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, White Mustache, th- this yogurt brand that's based in Long Island, they do a wonderful job of doing all kinds of yogurts, and they do have Persian yogurt, Persian-style yogurt. What I love to do with it is add it to marinades to impart acidity and to tenderize the meat. With fluffy rice, It's that's kind of a old remedy uh, that goes back, I don't know how many generations, uh, not just in my family, but definitely around Iran and, and maybe other parts of the Middle East when you have a stomach ache. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is really weird. There's a yogurt drink <laughs> called, uh, there's, obviously it's going to get weird when I'm talking. Uh, there's a yogurt drink called Dul. There's different ways of pronouncing it, if, uh, d- depending on if you're Turkish or Arabic or, or, or Persian. But it's, it's a yogurt drink made with yogurt and carbonated water and salt and occasionally dried mint uh, and sometimes dried rose petals. And it's so weird, and it's fizzy. It's a fizzy <laughs> dairy drink, okay. which sounds weird, but you drink yeah, it. Doesn't it doesn't sound good. No, when it's you say fizzy dairy. Drink. Yes, it's 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 weird. It's not for everybody, but you drink it on like the hot hot summer days, which uh-huh. sounds weird too. Yeah. Like why you do fizzy dairy drink <laughs> during the summer? <laughs> but uh, it's quite delicious. Okay, so to wrap up, I want to hit on uh, the last point you make about spice mixes. Why should we all be using spice mixes, and what are your favorite spice mixes for us to to add to our pantries? Well, first I have to say, this could have, again, like so many of these things, this could have just been a story on spices. So <laughs> I, had to, I had to cut it short and uh, obviously couldn't go in as depth as I would like. I think that part of the world, the Middle East, they are truly the masters of harvesting uh, and using spices more than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Just my thoughts. They're obviously, because of that, they've created these incredible spice blends that have been around for a long time. Some we're familiar with, like I think Raz Al-Hanou has definitely gotten, you'll see it on menus, and that has like a good, has a lot, of, it's filled with warm spices like cinnamon, uh, occasionally nutmeg, and uh, I, I love that one. Baharat, which is just Arabic for spices, really can be all kinds of spices, mm-hmm. uh, depending on you know what family or what town you're in. Okay. You'll see it with paprika, coriander, cumin at times, black pepper. Duka, which comes from Egypt, is used as a condiment, but it's definitely uh, can be as looked at as a spice mix as well. I think uh, the more kind of classic version has coriander and sesame seeds and ground hazelnuts. You'll see variations using uh, ground almonds or ground pistachios. Um, 
and other spices. Um, I love that one. And it kind of has this coarse texture. Another one that I love and the one that I grew up with is called Advia, spelled (laughs) A-D-V-I-E-H. And it's a spice mix um, from Iran that, again, just like all these spice mixes, every family, every town, every country has their own kind of own way of creating it. So... Uh, no one can ag- agree, I feel like, in that regards. But typically, you will see um, dried rose petals, uh, cinnamon, uh, dried lime, some warm spices, and definitely uh, fragrant floral spices, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, t- and turmeric. And they use this in uh, different pilafs and okay. as a base to stews and all kinds of things. How would you use baharat and, and dukkha? I would use baharat for a marinade or if I'm like, uh, want to use it to marinate for a piece of meat or, or fish or seafood. Uh, dukkha, I use it more as like a topper. Okay. I'll make a, a dukkha all the time, like a big batch and use it throughout the week or two weeks. So that's like toasting a few different nuts, toasting some whole spices, and then bringing that together and I have like a bowl of that. And I'll put that on top of my yogurt first, like savory yogurt preparation. I'll sprinkle that on like a citrus salad. I'll add that to my grain salad mm-hmm. for more texture. Yeah. One of the things I love about spice mixes is that I feel like you get a lot of sort of bang, bang for your buck. Exactly. Yep. Like you put a little, you know, baharat on, you know, a piece of protein, and it's like you have sort of put together like a complex, oh, yeah. you know, spice. You could fool mix. people that to thinking that you can cook. <laughs> not not you, Maribel. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> but it definitely does uh, does help. I mean, we didn't provide recipes. We kind of uh, uh, just told people what's typically in them. But um, well, you you did provide a recipe for spice snapper with cucumber salad. I did. That's true. That one that one does have a recipe. But you could find the Advia might be a little bit more difficult. But you could definitely find um, uh, dukkha and baharat and ras al hanu mm-hmm. um, out there. And I would right, these should probably be at Calustians. These I will definitely think. be at Calustians. And I would buy a few of them, all of them, and just play around and um, and see what you like and. Uh, that's, that's that's what cooking's about, right? Playing around and figuring out what you like and what you don't like. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much, Andy. Thank you, Meryl. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies with additional music by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.